Face Front heroes, this is Stan Lee. Believe it or not, you asked for today's story. And many of you demanded that we tell you how it's possible that these students, who never seem to have much money, could possibly afford their incredible secret crime fighting lab. Well, at good old Marvel, we listen to our fans. That's why right now on this very show, you're going to get the answer to all your questions. You're listening to the Stephen or Else podcast, and this is episode number 12. another episode of the Stephen or else podcast the only show online that's starting to look a bit squatchy I'm your host Stephen and I wanted to take a moment before we get started here and give a shout out to our newest patron over on patreon it's Kevin 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 is a longtime listener he's been listening since the beginning of just another fanboy and uh, like listener John was a, a big participant way back then. I think one of our, if not, I think our first voicemail back in the Just Another Fanboy days came from Kevin. Uh, Maybe, probably. I know that, I know Kevin that you've been around for a while. So I want to thank you for joining the Patreon. And like those before you, you now have immediate access to my other podcast called My Other Podcast, which only posts on Patreon. It posts twice a week, every Monday and Friday. So not only do you have this show to listen to, you can look forward to two extra short episodes each week. Now, speaking of this show, this week's show might be a little short. And by short, I mean as long as it's supposed to be. It should be around, I don't know, 30 to 45 minutes. It's not going to be the hour and 20 minute epic that was episode 11. Because basically today I'm going to talk about volume one of Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire. And I'm also going to try and speak about uh, Daredevil Season 3, though it has been a number of weeks since I watched it and I didn't take any notes while I was watching it. I mean, why would I? You know, I'm not one of those people. So that should be fun, you know, talking about a show that I haven't watched in a few weeks. That That should be special, knowing the way my memory is. Now, along with that, you're going to get more music from Michael Kill. Uh, We had his music featured on uh, a previous episode, but he's got some really good stuff, so I wanted to feature some more. Uh, But before we get actually into the meat of the show, of course I want to take a moment to talk about Stan Lee, who passed away on Monday. He was was 95 years old. You know, it's, it's... it's sad. It really is sad that that the world lost Stan Lee. But you know what? The man, look at what the man did in his life. I mean, look at everything that he did. And he lived to 95 years old. That's that's something to, to wish for, frankly, you know, to to be that influential, to be that loved and to to last that long, you know, good for him. Um now, I, I do have to admit that when the news came out on Monday, I, I thought about not even doing the show at all this week. 
it just felt kind of weird. It always feels kind of weird when, when news comes out of somebody passing away and then there are headlines, right? And then there, you know, headline comes out, Stanley passes away. And then the next headline is, Hey, look at this from blah, blah, blah. Yay. And it just, it feels weird that the world just doesn't stop for, you know, even 10 minutes to just mourn the passing of somebody like, like Stanley, like anybody. So the idea of doing an ep- uh, an episode where I can get kind of silly and, you know, just celebrating anything after that news, it felt weird. It didn't feel right. But then, you know, once I really started to think about it, do, do you really think that Stan Lee wouldn't want people to be celebrating comics, most especially uh, during the week? that he passed away. I mean, that's what Stan Lee was all about, celebrating comic books. And to not do that just feels like it would be dishonoring the man's memory. Now, I've never met the man in real life, um, but I did have two, I guess I'll call them two brushes uh, with uh, Stan Lee. Um, But before I get into that, I got these two really small stories to say. Um, You know, Stan Lee, I'll just say he had a huge impact on my life. I have two favorite characters uh, that top my list. Anytime somebody says, who are your top 10 favorite fictional characters? The two that top the list every time are Superman and Spider-Man. Stan Lee, along with Steve Ditko, created the character of Spider-Man. We wouldn't have Spider-Man without Stan Lee. And of course, Steve Ditko passed away earlier this year. So Spider-Man has just always been, you know, like I said, one of the tops for me. The first time I ran across Spider-Man wasn't in comic book form. It was on the electric company. And I was really intrigued by the character because he never talked. He spoke in word balloons. Everybody else on the show talked uh, in the little Spider-Man segments from what I can remember, and he spoke in word balloons. And then my first uh, encounter, I guess you could say, with Stan Lee, the first time I ever knew who Stan Lee was, was this guy who was uh, narrating... Spider-Man and his amazing friends, uh, you know, who's this guy? And he would always say, Excelsior. And what is, what, this guy sounds fun. He's, he's got me pumped. And I played, uh, there at the beginning of the show, one of his, man, I tell you what, I looked all over YouTube just for something from Spider-Man and his amazing friends, something with Stan Lee, because he would often introduce the shows, uh, and have little narrations in the middle of the shows. And, I worked on it for quite a while last night and found that one. And it's a pretty good one. So I'm glad I found it. I actually had to, whoever put it out there, they had it on a, on a, on a video of like all of Stan Lee's cameos. And that scene that they put on there was actually sped up quite a bit. So his voice was a bit high pitched. So I had to, I had to play around with it a bit. I had to monk, I had to monkey with it to, uh, slow it. Okay. I didn't work that hard. I just slowed it down just a tad to make it sound like it's supposed to sound. So yeah, I have these two little quick stories I want to tell about Stan Lee. Two times in my life that my life brushed 
near his. Like I said, I've never met the man, never spoken to him, but there were two times in my life that I came very close. The first one was about 20 years ago, and I was attending a comic book convention in Chicago. And for a very brief time, I shared a hallway with Stan Lee. I was walking one direction. He was coming the other direction. I really wanted to stop, say hi to the man, shake his hand, tell him uh, how much of an impact he has had on my life. Um, Because really at this point, I've been nerding out to his characters for over four decades. And like I said, for someone, for, for anybody to be able to create something that lives on in pop culture after you, after you have passed away, you have put something out there in the world that will continue to live on, that people, generations and generations will continue to love. That is, that's pretty, I mean, that's amazing. That's astounding. That's spectacular. That's invincible to use all the uh, the, the descriptive words there from a lot of his comics. But he helped create an entire universe of characters that will continue to live on now that he's gone. And, you know, that's, that's just amazing. That is an amazing thing. So I'm in a hallway, Chicago, Illinois. Here comes Stan Lee. And like I said, I really wanted to stop and say hi. But he was surrounded by people. He had his handlers, probably people from the convention. Uh, he was also surrounded by, I don't know, five or six people dressed up as Marvel superheroes. Cosplay wasn't a huge thing back then. Uh, typically, if you saw somebody in a costume, they worked for the comic book publisher. And so you had like Spider-Man and Wolverine and Captain America. And I can't re- recall who else. Probably, um, yeah, I don't remember who else what the other characters are there. So that was, that was probably the closest I've ever come to my life brushing up against Stan Lee's life. But just recently within the last year or two, um, the second encounter that I had, um, the second time that my life nearly intersected with Stan Lee, I wasn't actually even involved in any way. My brother-in-law shows up at the house one night and he's got with him this Marvel sticker book. It's like a, it's like a uh, like something you'd get for a kid. It's got a bunch of stick it's stickers in the back, and you take the stickers and you put them on all the the pages in the front. And he had been at the airport. I don't remember the exact circumstances behind why he was at the airport, but he was there. He was either uh, just getting off a plane or he was picking somebody up. It may not have even been our airport. He may have, it may have been uh, in some other city. Regardless, he was sitting in the airport and sitting near him was Stan Lee. And, you know, of course he was, again, he had people with him. He had his handlers and whatnot. Uh, and my brother-in-law wanted, of course, to go over and say hi, but he also in that moment thought about me, which I thought was really nice. He wanted to get Stan Lee to sign something for me because he knows that I'm a big comic nerd. And so he didn't have, he didn't want to, he figured if he's going to meet Stan Lee and have Stan Lee sign something, he didn't want him to just sign anything like a napkin or a piece of paper. So he, he went over to the, to the airport gift shop. And he finds this Marvel sticker book and uh, he buys it and he goes back and oh no, Stan has gone. 
Stan is no longer there. So he, my brother-in-law comes over to the house and he gives me the sticker book and he says, here, this is a memento of the time that I didn't get Stanley's autograph for you. And we, you know, we, of course, we still have that sticker book. Um, so yeah, Stan Lee is obviously going to be missed. I've been watching some of the tributes. I've been listening to some of the podcasts and, you know, the community, we're all taking it pretty hard. Um, I mean, we saw it coming and frankly, from the stuff that, uh, we've been reading, of course, we know that he was probably ready. And like I said, the man was 95 years old. I think once you've lived the kind of life that Stan Lee has lived and you reach the age that Stan Lee lives, I think you're, I think you're happy. You're happy to go. You know, you look at, look at what was going on with his characters right now. I mean, come on. Avengers Infinity War is one of the biggest movies of all time. His characters are known the world over. 95 years old. Yeah, I think at that point I'd be like, all right, you know, anytime you want to take me, I'm ready to go. My bags are packed. Let's let's get this done with because uh, I'm ready to move on to my next adventure. Running to play back of my mind a million times See the same things, review the same lines It's cold, I just need to move around some words Perspective will change and regain the ground I lost at first Worst is yet to come, hear it in my head Lately in the morning, I don't really wanna get out of bed Instead of rather let it all fade away Let my friends all leave, better if they don't stay okay I guess you were at a point when you said that I was probably wrong about feeling like I'm better off dead Sort of starting to wish I'd slip off to sleep Instead of walking around pretending like I still feel anything It's getting really old wearing the same mask I remember my sense of humor so I still force myself to laugh My last thoughts before I finally started up the bad dreams I'm starting to doubt I even really trust me Is that you? Was that me? Lately it feels like it's a struggle for me to even bother to speak It's been a long week, it's been a long week It's been a long week, it's been a long is that you? Was that me? Lately it feels like it's a struggle for me to even bother to speak It's been a long week, it's been a long week It's been a long week, it's been a long Life wasn't a blessing that they tried to tell me it was I don't believe it And so I picked up Sweet Tooth Volume 1 from the, uh, from the library It was, uh, it's entitled Out of the Deep Woods It collects issues 1 through 5 I've read these before, and I've read further along in the series before, but it was back when they were coming out, which was around 2009. So I didn't remember a lot about the series uh, and was really looking forward to reading it again. And it was written and drawn by um, Jeff. Why am I just suddenly blanking on the dude's name? Jeff Lemire. I think I said that earlier. Good Lord, having one of those days again, I swear. I just, you know, it's a perfect day for podcasting, frankly. It's it's very cold outside. Not, you know, it's it's jacket coat weather, but you know, of course, once you're in the close confines of a car and the sun is beating down on the windshield, it's still going to get pretty warm in the car, but as cool it is as it is outside, it's not getting too warm in the car. I might want to 
maybe close my shade a bit to keep some of that sun back. That That's nice. But anyway, I was talking about Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire. So this is a book, like I said, written and drawn by Jeff Lemire. Uh, I don't recall who else worked on the book because the library stuck a big sticker inside the cover that covered up all the credits except for Jeff Lemire. And you know what? I forgot to look it up online before I came out here to the car. And while I have my phone here with me, I'm using it to record. So I'll throw that in the show notes. Uh, but this is set in a post-apocalyptic world in Nebraska. And I I love me some post-apocalyptic adventure. There's just something about people trying to survive after the world has gone to crap. You know, there's something about having these... Uh, houses and and cars and just stuff left over that you know you have you, people they have to go into the go into these houses and scrounge for food or these you know like a a, a store or a build there's just something about that that I just find incredibly intriguing I think if I lived in in a in more of an urban environment and I had a more athletic build. I would probably be one of these people that explore abandoned buildings. I can't remember the names of them, but the guy who wrote the uh, um, First Blood, the Rambo, the book First Blood that was that the movie was based out of the Sylvester Stallone movie was based on. He wrote a book about these folks that explore abandoned buildings in a large metropolitan areas. I think I would be one of those people because there's just something about that that I find really intriguing. And so, of course, here's this book that comes along. It's post-apocalyptic. I'm going to give it a try, and I'm glad I did. It's about a young boy who's nine years old. His name is Gus, and he lives with his father in a cabin out in the woods, deep in the woods. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be sniffing a lot because the weather has just made my sinuses. If they're not running, they're clogged. If they're not clogged, they're freaking dry. It's just, it's a cornucopia of nasal fun in eastern Kansas at the moment. But Gus uh, lives with his father out in the cabin. Uh, Gus is not your normal nine-year-old boy. First of all, the biggest clue that you get uh, about Gus not being normal are the antlers that are growing out of the top of his head. His ears are also very much shaped... (coughs) Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink. His ears are also very much shaped like uh, the ears of a deer. And his father is sick. And so you you kind of learn his, his mother has already passed away. He doesn't remember his mother. And you kind of learn within the first issue that there was basically some sort of plague that, well, that killed a lot of people. Um, Gus, of course, is still alive. His father is still alive, but his father is sick. His father pretty much remains in bed as Gus goes out. It's winter and he's collecting firewood and stuff. Uh, But eventually within that first issue, his father does die. Um, And when the spring comes, Gus takes him out and buries him next to his mother. Now, his father um, ultimately taught Gus two things, uh, how to dress wounds and uh, how to care, you know, basically some, some basic medical knowledge uh, how to tend a garden and uh, religion. So, but he also taught Gus not to go beyond the woods. Beyond the woods is nothing but fire and death. 
so Gus has, has lived his entire nine years there in this cabin. And now he finds himself alone. And as he's out there, he's burying his father and he's standing there at the gravesite of his, both his mother and father, a deer, uh, walks into the clearing and both Gus and the deer have a little moment, which is quickly interrupted by a pair of hunters. Uh, one of which uses a rifle to put a bullet in the deer's head. Gus quickly hides. The hunters uh, rush into the clearing. They had seen Gus, and uh, they can they uh, refer to Gus as a hybrid, and act as if Gus is is not an unusual sight. That hybrid kids are are something that folks in this post apocalyptic world know something about. So it's not. While it was a shock for them to see him because uh, there's something about these hybrid kids that apparently people want. You get the feeling that, you know, they got to get Gus. They have to get him because he's a hybrid. But you don't know why at this point. Um, So Gus is in hiding and he probably would have remained hidden. But one of the hunters mentioned that uh, he's found the the boy's tracks. And so they're going to track him back to the cabin. So armed with just a slingshot, Gus decides to uh, attack, to defend himself with offense. Uh, But of course, he's a nine-year-old boy armed with a slingshot, and these are two grown men with rifles. And he runs, trips, and they catch up to him. And they are about to take him up uh, when another shot rings out, and one of the hunters is then shot in the head. Now, I probably should have mentioned this straight from the beginning, but this is not a book for children. And it's funny if you look at the if you look at the cover of the book, it's just Gus like a like from the shoulders up and he's got deer antlers, he's holding a chocolate bar and he's got chocolate on his face. It almost looks like something a kid might want to read, but don't let your children read this unless you don't have a problem with your children reading uh, a lot of curse words and seeing a lot of violence. Because that's what this book is, is has got a lot of, cursing and violence. Uh, so one of the hunters gets shot and uh, an, another man joins the clearing. Now, Gus had been having a dream about a man, an, an, an older gentleman with bad eyes. And what he means by that is the man is staring at him with these very angry, hostile eyes. And this is the man from his dream. So... You get a sense at this point that, you know, not only is Gus this hybrid between an animal and a, and, a, and a person, he dreamt of someone he's never met before. And now that person is there in the clearing with him. So does Gus, does Gus have the ability to see into the future using his dreams? Does he have the, the power of prophecy? Uh, we don't know. They don't, they don't answer that at all in this first trade. And I don't, and frankly, I don't remember it coming up a lot from what I read beyond the first trade, but they definitely don't answer it in the first trade. But, you know, maybe based on the fact that he did, uh, dream about this guy and now the guy's there. Well, so the guy takes out both of the hunters and he, he, Gus is still hiding and, and, and the man with the bad eyes says, uh, basically tells him it's okay to come out. But Gus at this point is run. He's run away. And the the guy tracks him back to his cabin, finds him hiding under the bed. And he tells him, you know, it's like, I'm not here to hurt you. Um, 
you're safe. I'm actually here to take you to the preserve. And Gus says, you know, Gus, you know, Gus doesn't want to go with him. His dad has, has told him never to leave the woods because beyond the trees again is, is hell and fire and, and death. Uh, but when the man who tells him that his name is Jeopard, which he says is like leopard, uh, he starts talking to him about the preserve and it's, he tells Gus that it's a place for hybrid children to go where they can be safe. And this really appeals to Gus. So Gus goes with him. And so the rest of the book, this is, this is uh, issue one, they set off. And then the rest of the book is, is basically a road book. It's, it's Gus and Jeopard on the road and some of the stuff that they encounter along the way to the sanctuary. Um, at one point, they're like their first night out on the road. Uh, Jeopard is is heating up some kind of he's grilling some kind of meat over the fire, which Gus will not eat because he says he's never eaten the meat of any living thing before. Uh, that his father has uh, had always grown vegetables and that's what they lived on. Jeopard gives him a, a candy bar, which Gus gobbles down, and that is where he gets the nickname Sweet Tooth. From that point on, Jeopard refers to him as Sweet Tooth for the rest of the book. That first night, they are uh, set upon by three men in what what look like tribal masks to resemble animals. One is 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 like a cat. One uh, looks like a maybe a horse. Then the other one is an elephant, and they're there for Gus. Uh, Jeopard, of course, takes two of them out using just his hands because he's a very good fighter. He is also very brutal. He, uh, he believes, he, he seems to have the belief, he's one of these fighters, that there is, there's no honor. You do what you need to do to take the guy out, uh, whether that's kicking them between the legs, gouging their eyes out, ripping their throat out with their bare hands. This is the way Jeopard fights, and so he takes two of them down. Now, as he's fighting them, however, these three men are armed with baseball bats with spikes coming out of them. And he does take a hit to the ribs at one point. Uh, And the man in the elephant mask snatches up Gus and runs off into the night. Jeopard grabs up his rifle and is able to take the man in the elephant mask down and get Gus back, only to pass out himself from blood lost. From blood lost? Lost. Blood lost. From blood lost. Uh, Gus at that point takes over and he, he gets, uh, Jeopard up on his horse and Gus leads the horse away. And eventually he finds a house with a barn and he takes Jeopard into the barn and he goes and he searches through the house and he finds food. And I don't know if at one point as Jeopard is unconscious, he cleans and, and patches up his wound. So I don't know if, if Jeopard had the medical supplies on him or if Gus found him in the house. But regardless, he he uh, he fixes old Jeopard up and Jeopard wakes at one point. Um, well, actually, before that, so because this is slightly important, Gus is going through the house and he's scrounging up food um, and he goes into a bedroom where there is the body of a little boy laying in bed who has obviously been dead for a number of years. And a little boy, he's got a Batman poster on his wall behind him and he's clutching a book called Dandy. And so Gus takes the book 
And so that night they, they eat, he patches Jeopard up and he falls asleep holding onto this book. And it looks like a, like one of those old golden books. I don't know if y'all are old enough to remember the golden books from back when I was a kid and they were kids books and they were called golden books because they had a, a golden spine. And it's the cover uh, shows a kind of a cartoony deer. So it's like Bambi, but it's, but it's called Dandy. And so that night he has a dream. And this character, Dandy, with a rabbit, visits him in his dream and tells him that Jeopard is not a good man, that he needs the, that, that uh, Gus should not trust Jeopard and he should run. And then you hear the sound of barking and Dandy is like, it's not too late, run, you have to, but you have to go now, you have to run. And Dandy runs away and a hunter shows up, but not like, a, not like an Elmer Fudd type of hunter, more like, a, like a, an old... Uh, dandy like the old uh, fox hunts that rich people would go on and he's got all these hounds at the you know with him but the hounds are like half men half dog and Gus wakes up from his nightmare and uh, Jeopard is is now awake at this point Um, and so but so if if you if you're if the theory at this point because Gus had been dreaming of Jeopard and then Jeopard is there to save him. Does that mean Gus has the power of prophecy? And if so, does this dream mean that he should run away? Well, he doesn't, he stays with Jeopard and we'll, we'll find out later whether or not he should have run. Uh, so they move on the next day and they're going through a a town. The next encounter they have with people they're they're still in Nebraska and they're going through a town um, and they come across, I can't tell by the art, whether it's like a, a football field or it's like the town square, but it's just filled with corpses and Jeopard apologizes. He kind of forgot which way that they were going. He had meant to avoid that. Um, and they realized that I, I believe at one point they, maybe they were going to go scrounge for food, but I know at one point they're in the middle of town and Gus can see somebody the, the shadow, the figure of somebody up in a window in like the second story of this building. So he and he, uh, Jeopard goes to investigate, tells Gus to stay behind, but of course Gus won't. And they, they go to investigate and they find in this room a girl. We don't know the age. She could be a teenager. She could be in her 20s. They don't really say. But she is, she's on this bed. She's kneeling on this bed and she's got rabbit ears. And uh, Jeopard confronts her and he pulls the rabbit ears off of her head. So we find out that they're fake. And uh, she appears to be some form, some some type of prostitute. She's a prostitute who is trying to, who's disguised as one of these hybrid kids. Because apparently they're, she, they are catering to, I guess, men who like hybrid kids. Uh, but as Jeopard is, is trying to figure out what's going on, somebody comes up behind him and puts a gun to the back of his head. Uh, it would be the the man who runs this this house of ill repute and his wife, and they have maybe three to four other girls with them, and they are they don't you can tell just based on the exchange in this in this point in the story that the this husband and wife do not treat the girls very well. Uh, Jeopard manages to talk the man down. The man's going to kill him, but Jeopard using just the cold steel in his eyes. Uh, basically convinces the man that he's not going to kill him. And Jeopard, if anything, will kill the man for, for daring to point a gun at him. 
So the guy ends up lowering the gun. He's like, all right, fine. You guys just, you, you all get out of here. Just leave us alone. And so they leave. And I believe at one point they can hear, uh, the man yelling at one of these girls and they might even hear a smack and Gus guilts Jeopard into going back up to save these girls. And so he does, and he kills both the, the man and the woman. And he tells these girls that they're free to go. Actually, he kills the man. One of the girls takes the man's gun and kills the man's wife. Jeopard tells them that they're free to go. And they're, you know, they're like, where are we going to go? Where, where can, there's no place we can go. I think they, they either ask if they can go with him or they're kind of hinting that they want to go with him. But regardless, they don't go with him. They, they, he and Gus leave them there. And eventually by the end of the trade, and this is going to be a big spoiler if you haven't read it, uh, eventually by the end of the trade, by the end of the fifth issue, they arrive at the sanctuary. But the sanctuary is not what it seems. You hear the word sanctuary. Um, is that what they call Now I can't even recall if that's what they called it. The preserve. Yeah. When you hear the word preserve, you're thinking of an animal preserve. So you're thinking of trees and, and hills and, uh, you know, just a lot of just a lot of land for animals to 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 run upon. But this is not this is a uh, some type of compound surrounded by a fence and um, they have to fight their way through uh, a bunch of men uh, blocking the path with a school bus. At one point, they finally make it to the preserve. It's not what Gus thinks it is. And come to find out, Gus, uh, Jeopard is selling Gus to the man that runs this compound, this preserve, who may or may not be some sort of doctor and may or may not be uh, planning on doing some experiments on Gus. Because you find out during the book, at one point, um, Jeopard asks... Gus how long he had been at the cabin and Gus said that his dad had just told him before he died that he had been that they were celebrating his ninth birthday or something and Jeopard said well that can't be right because the plague began seven years ago and you hybrid kids are what came out of the plague so there are hybrid kids who are hybrids of animals and and people who were born from the plague and you get the feeling that they are immune to whatever disease has been killing everybody off and that's why people want them but Gus on the other hand claims to have been born before the plague and yet he is a hybrid so what's the deal with that right and he he appears to have the power of prophecy he can see into the future he dreamed of Jeopard Jeopard was real he had a dream that told him that he should not trust Jeopard and that he should run. He decided to trust Jeopard and Jeopard sells him to this doctor of some sorts in, in this compound. And we don't know what he has been, what he has sold Gus for. He's just been given a big duffel bag. I mean, it can't be money. I mean, money is usually not a thing anymore in a, in a post-apocalyptic world, but you don't know what it is, what his price was, but he turns his back on Gus and he walks away and that's how the book ends. It was very enjoyable. And like I said, I remember I have read further than that book, you know, back in 2009, 2010. And so I have been having these, I don't remember much after, I don't remember much about the first five issues. I don't remember much about anything after the first five issues, but I keep having these flashes, these pictures of memory from reading some of those books. And it's got me excited to read more 
of the series. And so next month when I go to the library again with the girls, hopefully they'll have book two there for me to check out. Uh, the art in it is very, uh, Jeff Lemire's art. It's not a classical comic book art style. And that for this story, that's, that actually works to, to the story's advantage. It's very dark. It sets, I mean, not dark, but it really sets the tone. The, the, the art style sets the tone for what kind of book you're going to be reading. Um, I couldn't imagine. I've also been reading at the same time. I've been reading some old books by John Byrne. And I, I can't imagine somebody like a John Byrne doing a story like this because his art wouldn't fit a story like this. Jeff Lemire's art, however, totally fits the story. It's very stylized. Uh, it's very indie. It's, it feels like an indie book. And it, it, it is published by DC Vertigo. But it feels like the type of book that, regardless if he had done it through DC or not, he would have he would have self published it himself. That's that's how the book feels and that's how the book looks. But it was it's not to the book's detriment. It was a it's a very good story. It is a very quick read. That's I think if I was to say anything negative about the book, is that it is a very fast read. I read through that entire trade. Uh, about it, it took me about as long to read, you know, because I'm also reading some old books. You'll find out about wh- why I'm reading older books next week. But I'm also reading these older books. And in the amount of time it takes me to read one issue of an old book from the 80s, it take it took me to read all five issues of this trade. There, there are, of course, fewer panels nowadays. There, you know, a lot of pages are five, four, six to four panels. Very rarely do you get a nine panel grid or, or more than six panels, but you know what? That's fine. It, it, as long as, as long as the book is good, I could care less. And this was a really good book. Uh, so as long as you enjoy, as long as you can get past the cursing and the violence, if you're not somebody who likes a book with a lot of cuss words or bloody violence, this is not the book for you. If that stuff doesn't bother you at all, and you like tales about the the uh, post-apocalyptic adventure? Um, this is the book for you because it's like I said, it's a it's it's a really it's a really good read, and I'm really looking forward to uh, getting book two as soon as possible. A life lived rejected, a silence immeasurable, winning an illusion, hungry somehow more pleasurable, full stomach to make more food for crows. The ending was coming, it just got here so slow, rope faster. It spun us round a couple times With a flashback to a past we never really left behind It's just a matter of time But really isn't everything All that matters is time And it never stops ticking Pick it a place to get married And you pick it a first name Pick it a home for you to die And pick it a last move in the game Someone's picking the last outfit Picking flowers for the day Sing it a last goodbye A last time to walk away Then it's just a matter of time Your voice starts to fade And quit remembering your face Forget the things you used to say Reduce just to a symbol Little more than aesthetic Learn to live with it, cause you never get to regret it. recently watched season three of Daredevil on Netflix, and by recently I mean maybe within the last two weeks, uh, but I was able to watch all of the episodes within maybe a four-day period. I was able to do a lot of binging on the show. I know that, I, I think that one of the days after I had started watching it, I was off of work, uh, 
uh, and it was during uh, uh, the week. So the kids were at school and I was able to just spend the day watching the show. And it was it was really good. Daredevil continues to be the best of all of the Marvel Netflix shows. And, you know, it's, again, like, you know, if, if, if you haven't watched him and if you're not aware, it's not a show for children. And there, I do have conflicting feelings about that. It's kind of like, uh, like Deadpool, uh, the place I work at night, uh, or in the evenings and the weekends, my second job will sometimes have in the toy department, like plushy daredevil toy or not daredevil Deadpool toys. And we got them right after the first movie came out. And then we got them again after the second movie came out. And my thought is this is not a movie for children. Why are they making plushies for children uh, based on a character who is in a uh, rated R movie? Uh, And that's, you know, that's where I get conflicted when it comes to comic books. Um, Daredevil. And then Batman is also a good example. You've got Batman who basically a lot of these characters, you have different versions of the character. You have, they create versions for kids and they create, they create versions for adults. And that can be, if, you know, for a kid, it can be kind of confusing. It's like, oh, I've seen Batman cartoons and Batman's really fun. We like Batman. And here's a Batman comic book. Ooh, let me open it up and look. And there's a bat penis, you know, granted, if you're a good parent, you're going to keep that stuff away from your child. But still, I'm a little conflicted over that kind of stuff because Daredevil, while Daredevil is not, there's not a Daredevil cartoon. He has been in Spider-Man cartoons in the past. Uh, But this is not a show for children. I think it's rated TV mature. Uh, But let's just get beyond that because it was super freaking good. And this uh, saw the return of the kingpin, Wilson Fisk. He is in prison. And uh, we also find out how Daredevil survived the building falling on top of him in the end of uh, Defenders. And spoilers, uh, Matt Murdock never at any point during the entire third season puts on the Daredevil costume. He spends the entire time dressed as he did for most of the first season in black with the black bandana tied around his face. Uh, now there's reason for that. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get really deep into the, into the season. I just want to talk about some of my favorite, some, some of the things I really liked about it. Wilson Fisk, the Kingpin. I really liked, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio casting him as, as Kingpin, whoever, whoever's job that was, whoever made that decision, they can live the rest of their life knowing that, uh, they have done probably one of the greatest jobs of casting ever known in all of Hollywood, all of TV. Vincent D'Onofrio is perfect as Wilson Fisk. He's just, he's great. He has, there, there are moments where you feel like he is just an uncomfortable child, little kid, and you start to maybe feel a little sorry for him. And then the next thing you know, he's wrapping a man's jacket around his head and beating him to death with his fist. And he is just a brutal, brutal person. And he, he's ruthless. Uh, and he, the whole, you know, the whole uh, story is that he, um, he finds out that the, this, the woman that he loves, who's 
I, I just had her name run right on the top of my tongue and now I can't remember it. I can picture her. Uh, she's of course, she's in Europe and she's in hiding because the, uh, the authorities consider her a accomplice to Wilson Fisk's crimes and, and they want to extradite her back to America and put her in prison. And of course, Kingpin doesn't want that to happen because he loves her. And so he ends up cutting a deal with the FBI. He decides to turn snitch. If they will, you know, he's like, I'm happy to remain in prison but drop all charges against her and let her come back to the country. And I will drop the dime on all these big time, uh, drug rings and and whatnot, uh, human trafficking and just, you know, really shut down a lot of crime in New York city. And of course the feds agree, but then not long after he turns in the first, uh, criminal, he is stabbed in the weight room by another prisoner uh, he doesn't die, of course, and he uses that, his lawyers use that as, you know, Wilson Fisk is not safe in prison. It's the words out. He's, he is a, uh, he's a snitch. And if he remains in prison, he's, he's going to be killed. And if he's killed, then he's not going to be able to give up any more names. And so they strike this deal that would never happen where he is put on house arrest in this penthouse of this lush hotel and he's getting all, he's gotten all of his stuff back. And uh, on the detail, uh, one of the FBI agents on the detail watching him is a guy named Poindexter. Uh, everybody calls him Dex. And this is who will become Bullseye. And all the stuff about Dex, man, and how he, you know, his childhood and how Kingpin manip- manipulates him and turns him into uh, what will eventually become Bullseye. He doesn't become technically Bullseye at all in the season. What he does is he has Kingpin has Melvin, the guy uh, who is the gladiator in the comic books. He had him. He's the guy that that does, that made Murdoch's Matt Murdoch's uh, Daredevil suit. He has him make another Daredevil suit for Dex, and he's using it to discredit Daredevil. And he, you know, he has a press conference and blames Daredevil for his imprisonment. Said that he was innocent and he was framed. And in the meantime, Dex, dressed up as Daredevil, is out murdering people. He, uh, there, they, the the guy that stabbed Kingpin, they find him uh, because he was supposed to be in solitary, but they find out that he was actually released from prison. Uh, that Kingpin set it all up. He was never meant to die. He used it as a ploy to get out of prison and take control of his criminal empire again. And he takes control of certain key people within the FBI and the federal government and the police. And, you know, he does what the kingpin does. But uh, Karen Page Page tracks this guy down. They're going to have a press conference. uh, And then so Dex, dressed up as Daredevil, breaks it, you know, comes to the to the the building where the newspaper is, where they're going to have the press conference. And he kills everybody there uh, except for Foggy Nelson, uh, Karen Page. Um, I don't think he kills everybody in the building, but he kills a lot of people, but he's there to kill that one guy. And of course he does it as daredevil. And after he, uh, kills all these people, he on video, because there's security footage, he walks up to Karen page and he goes, Hey Karen, good to see you again. And everybody knows that at this point that Karen page and daredevil are friends. And so they all think it's actually daredevil and it's God, it's such a good story. 
Foggy Nelson is excellent in this season. He has quickly become one of, if not my favorite of the Marvel characters on all of these shows. Uh, but man, it was just a really good show. There was, okay, so when Dex dressed up as Daredevil, uh, creeps into the, into the newspaper offices, Murdoch, Matt Murdoch is there in his black suit with the, with the bandana tied around his head and they start fighting. And, and I actually started, you know, I know Daredevil's not going to die, but you feel they, they did a really good job of making you feel fear for Matt Murdoch. I mean, this Dex is just so good at what he does and everything he throws hits that what, you know, whatever he's throwing at something at it hits it. Whether he has to bounce it off of a couple walls, he knows all the angles, the trajectories. He's going to throw something at a tree to hit somebody next to the tree. He knows how to do it. And you actually fear for Matt Murdock at, at, during this point. It, he's just that good. And Matt Murdock himself is super freaking good. And for Bullseye to be that good, they did a really good job of creating a foe for Daredevil um, that you feel could easily beat Daredevil, that Daredevil has to work hard to overcome. Uh, but man, it was a it was a good season. And it ended it ended taking everything back to the status quo. So by the time that, you know, when the second this third season starts, Nelson and Murdoch is done. Uh, Foggy has gone to work for this big name uh, law firm. But by the end, uh, you know, you know, and Karen Page is working for the newspaper. But by the end of the third season, they have decided to bring Nelson and Murdoch back, at, but to invite Karen Page into the fold, and they toy around with the name uh, Nelson Murdoch and Page. But it doesn't. There, there is a scene right at the very end uh, with um, Dex in surgery because his back had been broken. And they're using some kind of uh, experimental surgery to repair his back. And so you do feel with that scene that Bullseye will be back. But otherwise, the way everything else ended, it's like maybe the show is over. With, with the cancellation of Iron Fist, with the cancellation of Luke Cage, maybe the show is over and we're not going to get any more Daredevil. I don't know what's going on there. You know, some rumors are flying around that Disney is just buying back all the all the properties from Netflix so they can put it on their new streaming service. But there are other people that say that Disney's not going to put shows like that on their streaming service because they're, they're too mature. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I would like to think that they canceled Iron Fist and Luke Cage because they're going to do a Heroes for Hire or a Power Man and Iron Fist season. That's, that's the hope. I think it's more of a, a pie in the sky type of hope. Um, but you know, that's the hope. But that was Daredevil season three. I really enjoyed it. And I know that Punisher's coming up pretty soon. And Punisher season one was amazing. So I'm looking forward to Punisher season two. And that was my talk about TV. Cause, uh, maybe you wanna join me next week holding blackers. Uh, maybe you think that you can see me in 
some Mario 3 Or maybe you wanna join me for book club feminist readings But politics a little past left Think I'm the only anarcho-socialist and nerdcore, yes But anyway, call me out whoever you can, man Between the rounds of Mortal Kombat, I read it in my Goldman But not trying to be labeled an extremist Ask Jesse dangerously, I'm the one's the future meanest Evolution is growth, seeking intelligence and season And you're left with a bona fide a negative three Challenge your audience and that's the job, no way to give it up or pass it on To last at all Challenge your audience Set on the internet whenever I post on my music page about political ideals, but I can't do things like, you know, make fun of the fact that Guile has the same tattoo on both arms. You don't have to be aggressive about it. I want to thank everybody for listening to this this here podcast. Uh, you know, it's it's something that I do really enjoy doing each and every week, uh, being able to get the time to sit in my car and just talk about stuff that I don't talk about with other people because I don't have a lot of people in my life that, uh, that I can talk about this stuff with. Uh, so I do enjoy putting this together and just being able to talk about stuff. And I, and again, I want to thank you all for listening. Frankly, though, I would like to know what you think about the show. You can email your questions and comments to me at Stephen or else at gmail.com. You can also leave a comment to the episode on the site that's over at Stephen or else.com. I would also feel very loved if you would take a moment uh, and go to iTunes and leave me a review. Even if you don't listen to the show through iTunes, just, you know, you can go on and leave a, you know, rate the, rate the episode, throw a couple sentences down. The, the higher, the more reviews and ratings I get, the, the easier it is for other people to find the show. So, uh, you know, if you could do that, that'd be great. If you don't want to, that's fine. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna guilt anybody into doing anything that, you know. I don't go out and review every single freaking podcast I listen to. So, but I'm just throwing it out there. If you do, however, feel inclined to throw a little support my way, there are a couple of ways you can do that. You can come. By, you be. You can do like Kevin and become my patron over at Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month. Not only are you going to get that warm and fuzzy feeling that you're helping me provide for my family. You also will get instant access to my other podcast called My Other Podcast, which releases twice a week and is exclusive to patrons only. You can check out my Patreon over at patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And if you're not into a monthly commitment type of thing when it comes to to supporting folks with a little bit of money, you can throw me a one-time payment for as little as $3 over at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash Stephen R. Orr. Links will be in the show notes. The theme song for this episode is Expendable by Trinity X. Find it and more songs from the band at atomiczombierecords.bandcamp.com. The rest of the music in this episode comes from Michael Kill. You can find him online at michaelkill.bandcamp.com. That's M-I-K-A-L-K-H-I-L-L.bandcamp.com. And don't worry, those links will also be in the show notes. So thanks for sticking around, folks. This was the Stephen Orell's podcast, and I'm suddenly in the mood for some bacon. Talk to you later.
Bye bye, Daddy. Bye bye, Daddy. Good job. Yay.